All right, well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 as we continue our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 17 from Hebrews chapter 12. It's on page 1285 if you're going to use one of the Bibles that we provide for you. As you're turning there, I want to uh, once again send out our uh, condolences and uh, our prayers for the Wilford family as they continue to mourn the loss of Eric. Thanks for all of you who came out to the funeral yesterday. I know that meant a lot to, to his family. So let's continue our journey through the book of Hebrews. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it may become defiled and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful to be gathered here this morning and to be gathered around your word. And we do pray that you would speak to us now through your Holy Spirit. That you would help us to trust you more. That you would help us to see your incredible love for us. And help us to turn away from our sin and turn towards you and towards holiness. And that we would grow, even now, 
uh, more excited and equipped to continue to take the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a sort of a legend of um, something that may or may not have actually happened with Henry Ford and his assembly line for creating the Model T. Uh, Apparently, the story goes that the assembly line broke down, and so Henry Ford got his mechanics to try to work on it, and for days on end, they tried to get this assembly line working again, but they just couldn't get it going. So eventually... Henry Ford decides to call a guy named Charlie Steinmetz. Charlie Steinmetz was the guy who uh, designed and actually built the assembly line for Henry Ford. And so Steinmetz comes in and and listens to uh, the the problem or listens to them explain the problem. And uh, he then takes his tools and walks over to one area of the assembly line. He works for just about 10 minutes. And then he picks up his tools. He walks over to the wall and hits the switch. And that thing starts running again. And uh, the assembly line's working. And so everybody's excited, and Steinmetz tells uh, Henry Ford, I'll send you a bill. And so a few days later, Henry Ford gets a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000, which, you know, today that's a ton of money, but back then that was uh, a tremendous amount of money. And so Henry Ford calls Steinmetz, and he says, uh, $10,000 seems like a lot of money for a little bit of tinkering. And so Steinmetz says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll issue you a new bill. And so a few days later, Henry Ford gets a new bill in the mail, and it says, tinkering, $10, knowing where to tinker, (laughs) $9,990. And you think about that, only the designer of a system has that invaluable knowledge of exactly how everything works and how to get things moving again. And we've been walking through this this beautiful letter to the Hebrews now for quite some time. And uh, we've been talking a lot about living by faith. And we've said many times that living by faith is that combination of trusting God and obeying God. Trusting Him and obeying Him. And in chapter 11, there was a huge focus on trusting Him. And now the author turns our attention to obeying God. To turning away from our sin, turning towards holiness because God is the one who has designed us. He knows how things are supposed to work. He knows what will lead to our flourishing, what will lead to our joy. And so we want to look to him uh, to understand how he has called us to live. And a big part of living by faith then is actively turning away from our sin, what God calls sin, and turning to holiness or pursuing holiness. And so that's our focus for this morning as we jump into chapter 12. That living by faith involves actively turning from our sin and pursuing holiness. And I love what the author does here in this chapter. He really gives us three powerful reasons for why you and I, who are saved by grace through faith in Christ, why we would want to turn away from our sin and why God calls us to turn from sin. And so here are the three reasons we're going to talk about. First, he's going to show us that sin makes our lives a lot harder than they have to be. Uh, Number two, he's going to show us that sin brings God's fatherly discipline upon us. And then number three, he's going to say that without holiness, uh, we won't see the Lord. And so we'll talk about what that means. So if you're making an outline, we're going to talk about these three reasons why we want to turn from our sin and pursue obedience, pursue holiness. That sin makes life harder than it has to be. Sin brings God's fatherly discipline on us. And without holiness, we won't see 
the Lord. So hopefully, uh, the hope is that as we leave here today, we have even more determination to turn from our sin and, and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to live as God is calling us to in His Word. So let's, let's begin by talking about that first reason. Sin makes life harder than it has to be. Look at verses 1 through 4. Uh, the author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and he's referring there to all the people in chapter 11 that we just talked about, he says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely or entangles in some translations. So let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now notice right there. He's making a connection between laying aside our sin, turning from our sin, and enduring through the life that God has given to us. And so the author is, it's amazing because he's using a metaphor for the Christian life, kind of our pilgrimage of faith uh, to God's presence. He's using the metaphor of a marathon. That word race is the word that they would have used to refer to the Olympic marathon. And uh, a lot of us are familiar with what a marathon is kind of like. Some of you probably run a marathon. Uh, maybe you've run a half marathon. Maybe like me, you've run two marathon gas stations for something. Uh, I've never actually run uh, very far. But nonetheless, we, we know what a marathon is. It is a long race, and it's, it's hard enough on its own. Therefore, I- imagine uh, if somebody was going to run a race, run a long marathon, the very last thing that they would possibly want to do is carry extra weight. There's, there's no way if you're going to run a marathon that you would show up in some huge plush track suit that, and carry uh, three-pound dumbbells in your hand and a backpack full of goodies or something like that. I mean, you just do not do that. You do not carry any extra weight. And this is what he's saying. Think about this. What he's saying is that our sin is like extra weight that's making it harder to run a race that's already hard enough on its own. In other words, our sin is making our already difficult lives even harder. And so he's calling us to turn away from it and to do the things that God, as our designer, knows will lead to our joy and lead to our flourishing. When we give ourselves over to sin, because sin always has consequences, we're making our lives even harder than they have to be. And so what he's getting at is that one of the keys to enduring the difficulties of life is laying aside our sin, turning away from our sin. That's part of how we're able to endure. Uh, look at verse 2. He tells us to focus on Jesus to see this even more clearly. He says, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what is he doing here? Uh, he's, you know, remember in chapter 11, he listed a lot of people that lived by faith and those would be examples of people who live by faith, but he wants our eyes on Jesus, who's not only our savior, but he's the ultimate example of somebody who has lived by faith. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith, meaning that, you know, Jesus is truly God and truly man. So he's the first and only human being to live by faith perfectly. Jesus perfected a life of faith. And what was included in that is that he was without sin. Jesus perfectly laid aside every weight and sin. Okay. And he, he ran the race that God set before him. He, ran, he lived his life, he endured the cross, and then he finished the race. And it's now in the joy that was promised to him. He is seated at the right hand of God. 
And what we can see then is, is Jesus is the perfect example of somebody who has perfected a life of faith, who perfectly laid aside every weight and sin. And part of how then he was able to endure all that the world threw at him was because he was not weighed down by sin at all. He was not weighed down by sin and its consequences because he didn't have any. Uh, look at verse 3. He says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I think part of that is we're thinking about the fact that through faith we're united to Christ, the one who could endure anything, so we have strength to endure, but also that when we're looking at Jesus, we're looking at someone who was able to endure and was not hindered, was not weighed down by sin and its consequences. So there's that connection between how is it that we're able to endure the hardness of life even more easily? It's by turning away from our sin. And that's what he does next in verse 4. He takes dead aim at our sin. Look at verse 4. He says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I think what he's getting at there is not literally that we need to shed blood as we fight against our sin, but I think what he's pointing out to them is, Uh, is that they have not yet fought against their sin quite as hard as they could have. Which is probably true for a lot of us. That we're not quite fighting against our sin as hard as we could have. And what I think he's trying to get them and us to see is that part of what is making our lives harder than it actually has to be is that we give ourselves over to sin and then we suffer the consequences of that sin. And so God is gracious to call us away from that, call us to the things that will lead to our flourishing. And away to away from the things that will lead to our misery. I'll give you an example. Um, posted this on Facebook um, a few days ago. I was, I was, it was amazing to see in the Orlando Sentinel, there was an article titled, Florida Could Declare Porn a Health Threat. There's actually legislation right now that may or may not be passed that would make uh, pornography a health threat. Here's what the article says. It says there is a, they, they now can tell there's a correlation between pornography use and mental and physical illness, difficulty forming and maintaining intimate relationships, unhealthy brain development and cognitive function, and deviant, problematic, or dangerous sexual behavior. So science has now shown that God was right all along, basically. Now think about that. What they're realizing is that something God calls us away from, when we give ourselves into it, it actually is, it begins to destroy us. It's, it's John Owen, the English uh, theologian from a couple hundred years ago, was right when he said, uh, be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. God loves us. That's why he's telling us to turn away from our sin. It's making our lives even harder than it has to be. It's like trying to run a marathon carrying a bunch of weight. And so it's a loving thing for God to call us to his law. We have to, we have to avoid the, the, the failure of seeing uh, God's law as something that's trying, through which he's trying to steal our joy. Rather, see that through his law he's calling us, he's providing our joy and he's protecting our joy because it's through his law that we live in ways that lead to our flourishing and not to our destruction and to our misery. God knows that life in a fallen world is ha- it's hard enough on its own and so he tells us in his word to obey him, to live according to holiness so that we don't make our lives any harder than it already has to be. Okay? He's our designer. He knows what will lead to our joy and to our flourishing. 
Sin makes life harder than it has to be. Let's look at reason number two. Sin brings God's fatherly discipline upon us. Verse 5. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And now he's going to, he's quoting from Proverbs, the book of Proverbs. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so the author is reminding these Christians who used to be Jews, that all throughout redemptive history, God has considered uh, people who believe in him, his children. And like a good father, when his children are doing things that will lead to their harm or to the harm of others, he disciplines them. Now, let's be very clear about the difference between discipline and punishment. Discipline comes from love, and it's a desire to shape someone in such a way that they will live in ways that will things will go well for them. Punishment comes from anger and it's focused on justice. And the good news of the gospel is that the punishment for our sin, Jesus received on the cross. That he has already paid for the, our sin in that way. He has suffered the wrath of God. He suffered the justice for our sin. So we're not being punished. God does not punish his children. But he disciplines his children. That word discipline in the broad sense refers to uh, the whole training and education of a child. And in the narrow sense, it refers to that corrective aspect where God is reproving and he's, uh, he's, he's shaping us. And here's what we have to come to grips with. God loves us so much that if we're getting into something that's going to lead to our eventual harm and destruction, he will bring adversity, hardship, even suffering into our lives as a form of discipline to drive us to repentance and to drive us back to faith and obedience so that we live in ways that will lead to our flourishing. Look at verse 7. It says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And he goes on to say, like, you know, what father, what good father doesn't, shape and train his children and teach them not to live in ways that will lead to their harm or to the destruction of others. In fact, he's saying that if when we do experience the discipline of God, that's the confirmation that we belong to him. That's the confirmation that he loves us, that he does view us as children. You know, when my neighbor's kids are causing trouble, I might call my neighbor and say, your kids are causing trouble, but I don't discipline them. They're not my kids. But when my children are beginning to live in ways that will lead to their harm or the harm of others, of course, because I love them. I do bring consequences into their life to steer them back towards a life that will lead to their flourishing. And verse 9, you know, fathers like me, we, we do our best. But verse 9 and 10 is saying that when God disciplines us, look at verse 10, uh, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. In other words, when God brings discipline in our life to drive us away from sin, it is so that we can share his holiness. It is so that we can really, another way to say that would be so that we can share his flourishing. God himself is not hindered by sin at all or its consequences. And he wants us to have that freedom as well. And he loves us enough to bring difficulty into our life when we are in sin to drive us back to him 
so that we're free of the consequences that that sin is going to lead us to. It's like um, I saw this cute video online of a little bear cub that had his head stuck in a bucket. Okay, and I don't know how he did it, but he got his head stuck in a bucket, probably trying to eat something in there, and he couldn't get the bucket off his head. So he's running around like a bear with a bucket on his head, and uh, he, he he doesn't know where to go. And so what happens? Uh, these guys are filming this, and they try. They decide they're going to try to help him. So they kind of run and they tackle him, and they kind of hold him down. The bear is going crazy and screaming, and they're working really hard. And they finally, it's kind of painful on the bear, but they they pull that bucket off of its head, and then they let him go, and he just runs off frolicking. Living as he should. Bears are not supposed to live with buckets on their head. (laughs) And this is why the author points out in verse 11. Look at this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. You can also translate that. It yields the fruit of... Of peace and righteousness. It yields the fruit of peace and righteousness. In other words, it gets the bucket off of our heads. Painful. God brings these painful situations, but what he's doing is he's ripping the bucket off our head. He's, he's enabling us to get back to his word, back to his law so that we live in, in righteousness, not legal righteousness. That only comes through faith in Christ, but practical righteousness and that we live the way we were designed to live so that there's a flourishing. There's a frolicking even once the bucket is off our head. So, we see that God loves us enough to bring difficulty into our life, hardship, adversity, when we're in sin, because he wants to use that to drive us back to trust in him and obedience, which will lead more to our joy, to his glory and our joy. So how do you know if you're being disciplined by God? Uh, This is a good question. Um, I think when... The way you know that you're being disciplined by God is when there's two things that are um, simultaneous. You are going through something very difficult. Life seems to be very challenging. And you also know that you are living in, in rebellion to God. If you know there's an area of your life where you're living in rebellion and yet things are very difficult, we do the math. And we recognize that the reason I'm going through something very difficult is because I'm, I'm experiencing the consequences of my sin and, and God loves me and it's his fatherly discipline so that I don't completely ruin my life. Now, not every adversity and hardship that we go through is, uh, is corrective discipline, okay? Because keep in mind that Jesus never sinned, but in Hebrews 2 and in Hebrews 5, we see these examples of even Jesus, the Son of God, suffered Okay, not, and he never sinned. So it's not all of our struggles are uh, because of our sin, but some are. And the way that we know it is because God convicts us in our heart that we need to be turning away from something and we're, we're experiencing some sort of adversity. And the good news is when we do turn away, when we repent, when we respond positively to his discipline, then he will, uh, the discipline will subside. And let me say this to you also. If you're thinking, well, I'm going through something really difficult, I don't know if it's because of sin or not. Good news, we're in a whole community of people who can help one another figure that out. You can talk to pastors, you can talk to elders, you can talk to your life group leader. We can work together to determine if God is indeed uh, bringing discipline on us. See, here's what you have to understand, what I have to understand. In Christ, we are completely delivered from the condemnation of our sin. 
And it's through God calling us to obedience that we are delivered from the consequences that happen right now, the consequences of our sin. God wants not only to deliver, He's already delivered us from the condemnation through obedience, through our trust and obedience of Him, He delivers us from the consequences. So, sin makes life harder than it has to be. Sin brings God's fatherly discipline because He loves us. He wants us to live in ways that will lead to our joy. Third, without holiness, we won't see the Lord. Now, let me, there's a, some, there's a lot here. And I don't want to leave anything unaddressed because it can be very confusing. So let's just work through this. Uh, That's what he says in verse 14. Let's look at verses 12 through 17. What does he mean uh, by without the holiness uh, that that no one will see the Lord? Look at verse 12. Uh, He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I think what he's doing there is he's saying, uh, if you're under discipline, repent, turn back to God so that things can get better. Okay, because when we... Just like when, 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 the, when my child no longer is behaving, when they respond positively to discipline and no longer behaving in that sinful way, I don't, keep it, I don't keep the screws pressed, right? We stop. So what I think he's saying is as we turn to the Lord, then things will get better. 14, he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now we're going to come back to that. I want to talk about Esau. Look at uh, 15 through 17. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is a very interesting turn of events here. Okay, what is he talking about? Um, He's again, if people are living in unbelief and therefore rebellion, that's that's how we miss out on the grace of God. We must trust God. We must believe in him to uh, obtain his grace, as he says. And so there's two possible interpretations of what we're dealing with with Esau. One is he's teaching here that someone who continues to live in sin long enough crosses a point of no return and they cannot be saved. That is the way that some people interpret this, even in the reformed camp where we believe in uh, election and assurance of salvation. Uh, it's, he may be teaching here that we need to understand that if we continue on in sin, what it eventually reveals is that we're not a believer and we may have no opportunity to actually repent and be saved. That's one very possible uh, thing that's being taught here. The other thing that may be taught through Esau is, is that someone who continues in sin will eventually do something that has lifelong irrevocable consequences. So from this perspective, some of the scholars who look at this, they see that the story of Jacob and Esau, if you know what happened is Esau was the firstborn and and had this inheritance coming to him. But one day he came home and he was so hungry, he saw his brother Jacob, the secondborn, with some food. And he said, you know, give me some of that. And Jacob said, well, give me your birthright. And Esau said, sure. He just totally disregarded God's covenant, God's promises. And for a bowl of stew... Uh, he gave up his birthright. And then if you follow his story, eventually what happens is Isaac gives Esau's blessing and inheritance to Jacob. And so later Esau totally regrets what he did. And he goes to Isaac and he tries to get his blessing and he can't. 
Isaac does bless him, but he doesn't bless him as the heir, as the one who has the inheritance. And so some people see uh, that Esau had no opportunity to repent, not referring to the, 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 the big idea of repentance where we become Christians or where we, through repentance and faith where we're saved, but actually it uniquely referring to that moment. There was no way he could go back and undo that foolish decision of giving up his birthright. And so sometimes uh, scholars will say that maybe what's being taught here is that if we continue on in sin, eventually we're going to do something that has lifelong, irrevocable consequences. And we'll suffer those consequences until we die. Another reason God calls us to obey him. So now let's talk about 14. What is he saying here? He says, strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. There's two different ways that uh, Bible scholars tend to look at this as well. Uh, One is he's saying that someone who claims to be a Christian but isn't growing at all in holiness is very likely not a true believer and therefore will not be saved. Okay, Because healthy things grow. If something is alive, it grows. We've got a plant in our house that is not growing and it is... Been dead for a while, okay? If something is alive, it grows. And so one of the things we have to recognize is if there is, if he's saying this in this way, he's saying that the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, he's saying that if someone is not growing at least somewhat in holiness, it, it, what the real issue is they're not a believer. Their faith is not real, and therefore when they die, they will face God's wrath. They won't see him. They won't enter into his presence and be welcome there. So that is a... Huge call to repentance uh, for somebody whose life is not changing, who's not, who's not experiencing, or at least who's not fighting against their sin. The second thing that's possible is he's saying that uh, someone who doesn't rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to pursue holiness won't see how powerful God is. Uh, one author, Luke Timothy, jo- Luke Timothy Johnson, says he's talking about seeing God through the eyes of faith right now in the same way that he, uh, the author early in this passage called us to look to Jesus. That type of seeing. And if that's what he's saying... Uh, then what he's talking about is when, unless we strive for holiness, unless we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and seek to obey God, we won't actually see God's power. We won't see his ability to transform our lives. And so it may be that he's calling us to strive for holiness so that we see God's power to actually change us and liberate us from our sin. Because you can hear about how powerful something is, but you, can, you only see it when you actually do the thing that, that is required to do that. For example, I'll give you an example. Um, a couple years ago, a very good friend of mine was got to test drive a Tesla. Have you seen the Tesla fully electric cars? And my father-in-law had been telling me about this because he rode in uh, a friend's Tesla and he was just saying, they are so fast. It's unbelievable. Like from, from when they're at a stoplight, you, there's this insane mode, apparently. You hit this button and when you hit the gas or I guess the electricity, um, I mean, it just goes. And I had heard about that so much. But then... Uh, my very good friend was dr- test driving one, so we, he, we got, I got in there and we said, okay, let's do this. And, um, and he hit the electricity and it was like, wham! It was just like, like I mean, unbelievable. It's like you were on a roller coaster. You're just immediately going very fast, but under the speed limit. And, um, <laughs> it was, it was, um, unbelievable. And the difference from thinking God, or thinking that the car was powerful, to seeing the power of the car was unreal. And, and the same thing here. The, the difference between sort of hearing that God is powerful to change us and seeing the Lord 
through his power to completely transform our lives is huge. And so I think both of these are true. If we don't trust the Lord in this life, we don't see him in the next. We, we see his wrath. But at the same time, if we don't trust him and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to see his power to transform us, then we don't see that power. But when we do, we see him completely change us and it leaves us on our knees ready to worship him. The more we rely on God's spirit to obey God's word and pursue holiness, the more we will see God at work in our lives. And the more we'll end up praising him. So God calls us, if we're going to live by faith, it involves turning away from sin, it involves pursuing holiness, seeking to obey God by the power of the Holy Spirit. One, because if, we, if, we're, if we're giving ourselves over to sin, we're making our lives a lot harder than it has to be. And when we do that, God loves us so much, he chooses to discipline us, to drive us back to the things that will lead to our flourishing. And when we do repent and get serious about fighting against our sin, we see the Lord. We see his power to transform our lives. So let's do that together. Let's trust him and obey him and continue to live by faith. Let's pray. Father, um, none of us here are without sin. And some of us might be going through something quite difficult because we're suffering the consequences of sin and or we're under your discipline. And would you just, Holy Spirit, would you today give any of us who are under discipline the strength through the gospel and through fixing our eyes on Jesus, the one who took our punishment, would you, would you liberate those of us today that we might really turn away from the sin that we've been giving ourselves over to. That we'll come out from underneath your loving discipline. And that we'll see you at work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.